You're listening to the Grow Your Own Food Podcast, a show dedicated to helping you grow fresh fruit, vegetables, and even grains in your own backyard. In every episode, you'll get growing tips, recipe inspiration, and more. Ready to get growing? Then let's jump in. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 79 of the Grow Your Own Food podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Smith, and today we are talking about planning for pollinators. So I myself have been guilty in the past of not not doing as much as I could to support the pollinator population. I will say, though, in the past few years, I have definitely increased my number of plants that are planted solely for the purpose of supporting my local pollinator populations, be they bees, butterflies, braconid wasps, um, other, other types of wasps, all kinds of little bugs and beetles that are, that are attracted by the plants that we're going to be talking about. But in addition to talking about various plants that are good for attracting pollinators, we're going to be talking about other conditions in your garden that you'll want to think about and other things you'll want to plant in order to support pollinator populations. And we'll also be talking a little bit about why it's important to support your pollinator populations, whether it's in your yard or even on your balcony, even if you live in an apartment, it is possible to, you know, support your local pollinators. So that's what we have on deck for today. But first, a word from our sponsor. So like I said in my last podcast episode that was all about bees, I absolutely love bees. But as a beginning gardener, I I really wasn't doing everything that I could to make sure that they were thriving in my area. I didn't understand, you know, how important they were for the success of certain plants in my garden. And now that I do have a very thorough understanding I do everything that I can to support them. And I really feel like anybody who has a vegetable garden or has the space in their yard should be doing as much as they can to support local pollinators too, because according to the National Resources Defense Council, the NRDC, at least 30% of our food supply depends on the act of pollination. So whether that pollination is done by bees or wasps or butterflies or beetles, that's still pollination, right? So that's 30% of our food supply. A whopping 90% of our wild plant life requires pollination to reproduce. So if, you know, the bees and the butterflies and everything all die out, those plants aren't going to get pollinated and humans need plants to survive. I mean, not just for food. Think about the trees that create oxygen. They take, you know, carbon dioxide and release oxygen out into the atmosphere. We need trees too. So there's just, there's a lot of really, really good things that come from pollination. And it doesn't stop at pollination either. Many pollinators have sticky feet and hairy little bodies that also help spread seeds. So they're responsible for seed germination and seed spreading too. So like I said, if you're a gardener, if you're a human, it's really in your best interest to help pollinators. Yes, even wasps as much as you can. 
So this episode is all about how to plan for pollinators. The number one thing you can do to plan for pollinators, to help pollinators in your garden, is to plant flowers. For the first few years, I will admit, of serious gardening, you know, where I had actual garden beds and I wasn't just growing things in a few pots, I had the best of intentions when planning for pollinators, but I am super, super guilty of trying to use every available square foot of soil in my garden to plant or fruit a vegetable. I am very much about efficiency, about production. I'm a little bit of a perfectionist in that way, especially when I march out to the garden to transplant all my seedlings in the spring and find that I have a few extra seedlings than my planned layout calls for because I got a little greedy and I decided, oh, you know what, I will plant or I will let a few extra grow just so that I can plant out like the strongest ones out into the garden. And more often than not, I would end up plugging a seedling in where I should have planted flowers later in the season, Um, especially with my like brassica seedlings that I plant out in March, you know, when it would come May, which is when most flowers can be sown or, or transplanted, I would have a broccoli seedling there like, oops, but Since I have a whole bunch of ideas of what to do with extra seedlings, and you can find a link to that post in the sister post for this episode, which I've linked to in the show notes, I don't really have an excuse anymore um, to take those extra seedlings and plant them where flowers should go. So definitely make room for flowers in your garden. They're going to attract more pollinators, and so more pollinators are going to end up on your plants in your garden, your vegetable plants that that need pollinating. Things like cucumbers, squash, melons, all kinds of good things like that. Not just any flowers, though. There are certain flowers that are particularly attractive to pollinators. So you want to try scattering these throughout your garden. There, There is one, a couple actually in particular, that I don't recommend planting directly in your garden bed because they can be invasive or allelopathic. And I'll explain what that is here in just a second. But certain flowers are going to be better than others. In this list of flowers, make sure before you plant them that you read up on their growth habit. Some of them get rather tall and can block the sun from reaching nearby plants. So the flowers that both bees and butterflies absolutely love and would be a great addition to your garden would be snowdrops. These are one of the very first flowers to pop up in late winter or early spring, and they are a great supply of first food for bees, especially. Butterflies, due to migration, you know, we don't we don't see them very, very early in the spring like we see bees. Bees stay nearby, overwintering in their hives, whether those are man-made hives or they are hives somewhere in a tree that they're in naturally. So they end up materializing in yards and gardens a lot sooner. So a snowdrop is going to be very good for them. Same thing with Dutch crocuses. They bloom very early in the season, so that equals early food for the bees. 
Black-eyed Susans are a really great flower. They're very drought-hardy, especially in places where I live, like the Midwest, where it gets really hot and sometimes there's not a lot of rain. Black-eyed Susans also bloom into fall and they produce a ton of pollen, so they are great for butterflies and bees. Same thing with Cosmos and Zinnia. Both Cosmos and Zinnia do get rather tall, can become quite large stands of flowers. So make sure that you're putting them in a place where they're not going to block out the sun from shorter plants, like vegetable plants in your garden. But otherwise, they produce tons and tons of flowers for months at a time. And they're really, really great for both bees and butterflies. Two more flowers that I would definitely recommend, but I would recommend that you either plant them apart from your vegetable garden or you plant them in a pot would be sunflowers and bee balm. I've talked a little bit about both of these flowers before, but sunflowers are allelopathic, which means that they hinder the growth of anything growing around it so that they don't have to compete for nutrients in the soil. They send out these exudates in the roots, these kind of chemicals or hormones through their roots that that keep anything nearby from, from growing or growing very well. So you want to make sure that you are planting sunflowers somewhere where, you know, it won't impact the growth of the things in your garden, like your vegetable plants. I made this mistake a few years ago. I planted sunflowers in the back of my corn bed and the corn stalks that were growing really close to the sunflowers did not actually produce any ears of corn. They did not grow well enough for that. So that was how I learned that lesson. Another lesson I learned was to not plant bee balm in your garden bed. Bee balm is best relegated to a pot or a part of your yard that you don't really care if it goes crazy. Um, Bee balm spreads through rhizomes underneath the ground and will kind of pop up wherever it wants to. It's in the mint family. Mint, any variety of mint, will do the exact same thing. So you want to make sure that if you plant bee balm, which you should because it's great, like I said, for bees, butterflies, and even hummingbirds too, just make sure you're not planting it in your garden bed or it will run rampant. My next tip would be to allow your herbs to flower from time to time. So some herbs are actually bee and butterfly magnets. We just don't know it because we don't let them get to the flowering stage, right? We want to keep them producing tasty leaves for us. So we pinch off any developing flowers to to keep the plant diverting its energy into producing leaves. But bees love a lot of different herb flowers like basil. They love basil flowers, sage, oregano, comfrey, Catnip. Catnip is a huge attractor of bees, tiny beneficial braconid wasps, and butterflies as well. So, you know, you don't have to let all of your herbs go to flower if you want them to produce, keep producing leaves for you. Um, But I would recommend, you know, if you have more than one herb plant, letting at least one of them go to flower for the sake of supporting your local pollinator population. 
And it might sound crazy, but even letting some varieties of vegetable go to seed from time to time can be a big draw for pollinators. So last year in 2020, I let some onions, which I'd started as sets instead of seedlings, go to flower. And you have never seen such happy bees. If you've never seen an onion flower, an onion blossom, they look a lot like allium flowers, those big purple globe flower blossoms that are on like those big, tall, thick, round stalks. Onion blossoms look the same except for they're white because onions are in the allium family and they are just this big snowball puffball flower heads made of tiny individual little flower blossoms and bees just go crazy for them. So after seeing that, I decided to save back any small underdeveloped onion seedlings, you know, every year. I always have a few onion seedlings, even though I start them from seed, you know, they won't get much bigger than like the size of a pearl onion. And so I save those over the winter. Those will actually keep over the winter as long as they don't get too dry. And I'll plant them the following year. And in that following year, because it's their second year, they will turn into flowers if you let them. You end up, you know, the onions at the bottom of that plant don't end up getting as big and thick and bulby as, you know, the, your first year onions that, that grow really nice and big from seed. But I think it's worth it to honestly let five or six of them in my garden go to flower for the purpose of supporting bee and butterfly populations. And I've also seen wasps on them as well. The next thing you can do is plant flowering herbs and shrubs. So I know I talked about culinary herbs here just a second ago. I talked about sage and basil and oregano. So when I say flowering herbs here, I'm talking about things that we don't really grow for the purpose of culinary use. There are a lot of flowering herbs that they are edible. They're just not ones that we use commonly in our cooking. So a really good example of that would be borage. I've talked a little bit about borage before. It's a tall flowering herb with really striking um, indigo star-shaped flowers. They are a bee magnet. Both honeybees and bumblebees, they attract them by the dozen. That is the busiest part of my garden in terms of pollinators every year is where I plant my borage. Their leaves and flowers are edible. They taste kind of like a cucumber. And the blossoms of borage make really, really pretty floral ice cubes, actually. But I, even though I've, I've done that, I've made floral ice cubes before with my borage blossoms. I really only just grow the borage for the purpose of attracting pollinators because it does it so well. Another flowering shrub that you can plant is milkweed. It's the only thing monarch larvae will eat, so it's the only plant that monarch butterflies will lay their eggs on. And if you haven't seen dozens of monarchs swarming a milkweed bush in like August or September, you are missing out because it is one of the most beautiful sights, I swear. And then milkweed also attracts bees, both bumblebees and honeybees like crazy. I will say it attracts some pretty huge freaking wasps like 
really huge wasps. Mr. B refused to mow around the milkweed plant because, like I said, he is a little skittish, especially around wasps. And if he went anywhere near that plant with the lawnmower, it just seemed to, you know, freak the wasps out. And he was like, not doing it. So mowing around the milkweed plant is my job because it doesn't really bother me. I mean, it, it. I will duck if a giant wasp comes flying at my head. But I know that it's just being territorial. More often than not, it's not going to sting me. And it'll fly back as soon as I walk away. You know, it'll fly back to the plant. So just know that. Know that milkweed does attract some pretty huge wasps if you're a little skittish about wasps. And in addition to milkweed, both bees and butterflies are crazy about butterfly bush, lilac bushes, and elderberry bushes as well. And you'll also see a lot of different little beetles, like I said, that have sticky feet and will also land on those and carry pollen to various places. So those are some flowering herbs and shrubs that are huge, huge magnets for pollinators. Um, And because they can get so large and create so, so many blossoms on one plant, they're just, they're really, really effective in terms of supporting pollinators. Another thing you can do in your garden and in your yard to support pollinators is to provide a water source. So in my previous episode where I talked about everything about bees, facts about bees, I talked about how bees drink water. Well, it's not just bees. Butterflies and wasps need water too. So you'll find them what's called puddling. Butterflies and wasps do something called puddling. You've probably seen it before, actually. After it rains and the puddle has started to dry out, sometimes you'll see wasps or butterflies there in the puddle. They're drinking, yes, but they're also taking up nutrients that are in the soil and rocks that are in that puddle. So that's kind of something that you can mimic by creating a water source, providing a water source in your garden. So a lot of people use a bird bath in their garden for this purpose, but bird baths can be surprisingly expensive, actually. I did find one that was relatively affordable, and I linked to that in the sister post for this episode. But if you don't want to spend the money, you don't have to. Try using a pretty shallow bowl that you found at like Target or something. Place it on a weather-resistant stand like an upturned terracotta pot, fill it with water, and then put a bunch of marbles and pebbles in it so that the pollinators, if they fall in, they have a way to kind of crawl out. Um, You can also use a pet feeder style watering dish, you know, one of those ones that has the overturned water jug in it that when the water level gets low enough, it'll kind of blub blub out some more water. Those can be used as a really great water source for pollinators in your garden as well. Again, if you use those, just remember to put some rocks or marbles that stack up above the water surface so that the bees especially and wasps can climb out. Um, You can also make your own butterfly or pollinator puddler. Really, really easy. All you need is some quickcrete and you can press like some really pretty leaves in there. You can put your kids' handprints in there. All, all sorts of really cool things you can do if you Google DIY butterfly puddler or puddling stone. Some really neat ideas. 
The last thing that I would say you can do to help support pollinators in your garden is to provide them with shelter. This is mostly for carpenter bees, otherwise known as mason bees. Um, A lot of us have probably seen mason bees or carpenter bees kind of buzzing around the outside of the house. And this isn't great because as their name implies, they will actually kind of burrow into wood siding in a house to create shelters for themselves. So obviously creating holes in the side of the in the side of your house is like not such a great thing. If you provide them with shelter though, they won't have to do that. Now, these clumsy fuzzballs bumble from flower to flower more clumsily than a bumblebee, bigger than a bumblebee, and they trail hilarious amounts of pollen in their wake wherever they go. Their methods might be pretty imprecise (laughs) and messy, but it makes them very efficient pollinators because there's just the pollen goes everywhere. Giving carpenter bees or mason bees shelter provides a place for them to go during rainstorms and cold weather so they don't have to burrow into the side of your house. And you can put this shelter right in the middle of your garden and keep them close by. You can easily build one out of wood scraps and cut down pieces of bamboo poles if you have a workspace at home. If you don't have a workshop, not a problem. A lot of times you can still kind of like glue together a a mason or carpenter bee house or you can always buy one. I again, I linked to one in the sister post for this episode. And The nice thing about these little carpenter bee houses is that these little houses work for other types of beneficial bugs as well. So they're a great addition to your garden. So that's it. Those are all of my tips for providing a pollinator-friendly environment. You know, whether you have a vegetable garden, a flower garden, an apartment, you know, a container garden on your apartment balcony, you can still do a lot of these things to help pollinators survive and thrive in your area. A lot of these pollinators are suffering from loss of habitat whenever, you know, a new building development or housing development goes up you know, they're they're losing natural habitat. Whenever a a road is constructed, they lose their natural habitat. They're also suffering from loss of habitat due to pollution and environmental changes due to climate change. So every little thing that you can do to help support pollinators not only goes to help you in your garden, but also helps the human population in general because it it helps guarantee our food supply. So like I said, really important. If you do any one of these things while, you know, planning this year's garden in the next couple months, I I thank you in advance on behalf of the pollinators because they, you know, they can't really thank you. They'll thank you by stopping by. How's that? So um, thank you for listening. Thank you for considering supporting pollinators in more ways than you have in the past. I I promise you it's, it's a really fulfilling thing to see develop in your backyard or on your balcony. In the next episode, I'm going to be talking about how to sprout seeds for eating. So this 
blog post came about a couple of years ago during my challenge of trying to only eat produce with a few exceptions that I grew in my garden. I was looking for ways to give myself some fresh vegetables or fresh greens in our home that I had grown myself. And I found that sprouting seeds was a really great way to get bean sprouts and microgreens, things like that, in a very short amount of time. So I'm going to be talking about how to do that at home in the next episode, and I hope you'll tune in. Until then, thank you so very much for listening, and I will talk to you guys then. Thanks for listening to the Grow Your Own Food podcast. Visit beeandbasil.com for helpful how-to articles, images, and recipes.